0: Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy. I'm your host for today, and we're going to be talking about cyber war and specifically how do cyber activities augment, supplement, or kind of run alongside the traditional forms of warfare. This is going to be kind of interesting because if you're probably aware in the current events, there's a lot going on in this area. I'm not going to get into politics. I'm not going to pick sides. It's not the purpose of this particular presentation. Rather, it's to sensitize you to take a look at the overall scope in which these operate. What are the international legal frameworks? What are ways that we could go ahead and anticipate what might take place in this area? This is potentially interesting for everybody, because to go ahead and take the quote from Vladimir Lenin, you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. So let's pause, take a moment from our sponsor, and we'll continue. RISC-360 is a cybersecurity technology and consulting firm that works with high-growth technology firms to help leaders build, manage, and certify security, privacy, and compliance programs. They publish weekly thought leadership, webinars, and downloadable resources such as their PCI Compliance Program Workbook, a business case for SOC 2, and ISO 27001, the path to certification and many more titles, all available for download at no charge at risk360.com slant resources. Let Risk360 help you build your business case to achieve certification compliance. That's R-I-S-K-3-S-I-X-T-Y.com slant resources. All right, let's get started. Probably a good way to start is to begin with some definitions. And let's look at the term cyber war. Oxford Languages states that that term means the use of computer technology to disrupt the activities of a state or organization, especially the deliberate attacking of information systems for strategic or military purposes. RAND Corporation offers this cyber warfare involves the actions by a nation state or international organization to attack and attempt to damage another nation's computers or information networks. And tech target states. Cyberwar is the use of cyberattacks against a nation-state, causing it significant harm, up to and including physical warfare, disruption of vital computer systems, and loss of life. What I find interesting is the little nuanced differences in these definitions. Oxford says it's about disrupting the activities of a state or organization. Rand says it could be caused by a state or organization, but it's an attack against a nation. And Tech Target basically also says it's against the nation state, suggesting that if we take a look at the scope of cyber war, it doesn't mention anything about civilian infrastructure. It doesn't mention anything about corporations or the individual citizens. And so I guess none of this stuff applies, right? Probably it does. And so I think we have to go beyond the textbook definitions to understand in their modern interpretation what is going on with cyber war. If we go back and talk about kinetic war and the concept of kinetic, uh, let's take a look at some definitions there. If we go to the U.S. Air Force Doctrine Publication 3-0, kinetic is defined as relating to actions designed to produce effects, including the forces and energy of moving bodies and directed energy, including physical damage to, alteration of, or destruction of targets. That, to me, is a very comprehensive definition. Well done. The Urban Dictionary, if we loosen up our standards a bit, talks about kinetic as political jargon for an act of war or other violent military operations, and it's generally used when politicians don't want to say war. Or if we talk to the average soldier and you talk about that, the military vernacular would be warheads on foreheads. Well, the question I want to pose for today is, do cyber and kinetic play well together, so to speak? Well, let's find out. If you take a look at the concepts, now, Dijkstra et al. in Joint Forces Quarterly 99, that was published in October 2020, put together a table of the differences between kinetic and cyber weapons. And kinetic weapons generate access. Basically, you blow a hole through something, you breach a wall, you come into an area. It's compared to cyber weapons, which are going to leverage your access. That is to say you've already got something, and so you're going to extend that, meaning you might get into the command and control systems of an enemy. Kinetic weapons are difficult to reverse engineer and repurpose. Once something has exploded, you can't really put it back together again and make it blow up a second time. However, cyber weapons don't have that capability. They can, if you will, be re-engineered, repackaged, and sent right back over to the opponent. And therefore, cyber weapons tend to have a longer life except we're gonna take a look at that in a bit to see really how long can these things really last. Uh, kinetic weapons then have a permanent effect. Once you've blown something up or physically destroyed it, it's gone uh, as compared to, or damaged. It's compared to the potentially reversible effects where you can restore from backups in the cyber world. Although kinetic weapons are local, they're going to go ahead and have some blast radius. You could possibly have a global effect with cyber weapons. We've seen some things that got out of hand, so to speak, and literally spread around the world on the Internet. What you find then is that kinetic weapons tend to have a fixed effect. A thousand pound bomb will blow up with a certain amount of joules of energy as compared to a cyber weapon, which could be easily tailored and so- focused very, very specifically down to even a range of IP addresses. And we find out that for kinetic weapons, particularly the more sophisticated ones, there's a fairly high barrier for entry. I can't really 3D print some of these things in your basement, yet there's a low barrier to entry for cyber. And so as a result, what we take a look is that the experience that we have with kinetic... The fact that there is a doctrine that exists, the intent is pretty straightforward when something blows up. We know that somebody had something in mind and it's pretty much attributable. You can figure out where it came from. You can see the launch from this location or it was placed here. It's compared to cyber, which we're still trying to figure out the rules for. And it can be sent in a way that's very difficult to find attribution. And in fact, that's one of the difficulties in cyber is the who-done it portion of it. We might find out that we think Party X did it, but it could be what we call a false flag where they try to make it look like somebody else. Now, why do cyber in the first place? Well, you can do it for both offensive as well as defensive purposes. From an offensive purpose, your cyber operations can disrupt an adversary's command control communications, the C3 systems. Of course, we go C4ISR, computers, information, surveillance, reconnaissance. We can get into these big, long military definitions. But the whole idea is if you're using offensive cyber operations, you're going to try to degrade the ability of your opponent to coordinate their military operations. They can also be used for intelligence gathering, where you're going ahead to essentially reading your opponent's communications. And it could be doing influence operations. You could change their perceptions. You could enhance your situational awareness by being able to know, hey, this is what the opponent is seeing. It's something in our actions over here didn't get picked up by their sensors, or we might blind their sensors, and things like that. So that fits into offense. And also, in offensive planning, your cyber capabilities, you're going to integrate that to create a multi-domain strategy. You're going to combine that with traditional and cyber operations. So I don't work in offense and have never had that opportunity to do so. We tend to think of red teams as being offensive, but I'm talking at the geopolitical level where three letter agencies and their equivalent are doing these activities. And so as a result, a lot of this is going to be speculation on my part based upon my experience and my background. Plus of course the research that I've done. Uh, If you work in that community, you might look at it and go, yeah, you missed that. Sorry about that, but uh, I don't live in that community. So we'll just keep that stuff where it belongs. Now, in addition to offensive cyber war, there's a the concept of defensive cyber war. The idea is you want to safeguard your military systems against attacks to ensure your critical infrastructure is available and reliable. Kind of the C-I-N-A. we want to go ahead and protect all of that. We want to protect your ne- military networks and information because if you're going to maintain your operational capability, it's different. That if you lose your network as compared to have it. Now, Vice Admiral Sabrowski years ago, I think he was a president of Naval War College, it talked about network-centric warfare, I wrote this, about this back in the 90s. And prior to that, everything was sort of platform-centric warfare. You had a battleship, you had a submarine, you had a tank, you had an aircraft. And his idea was, hey, we're going to stitch all that together, and the core of that is going to be the network. And I think modern military doctrine has really gone forward from that in that you don't operate independently. And if you can disrupt your enemy's communications in command and control, or if an enemy can do that to you, you've really degraded the ability of a particular party to uh, engage correctly. And we're going to look at some examples in a moment. And finally, your cyber defense strategies involves continuous monitoring. Now, we're supposed to do that for businesses, right? Threat detection, and then rapid response. Those are all important things to do. Now, within all of the concepts that we're talking about, cyber and cyber war, et cetera, there is an overarching term of international law. Now, We may hear of some activities as being said that this is not in accordance with international law. It's not in accordance with the Geneva Convention. You hear the term war crimes thrown around and things such as that. I'm not going to get into those definitions, but I do want to talk about four key principles that exist in international law that will sort of apply to cyber. And it's going to get us thinking along these lines. The first one is sovereignty. Now, The principle of sovereignty is a fundamental concept in international law. It's in the Charter of the United Nations. It's a lot of international treaties and agreements. And essentially, sovereignty refers to a state's exclusive right to govern its own territory without external interference. In the context of cyber warfare, if you respect the sovereignty of another state, it means you do not conduct cyber attacks that infringe upon territorial integrity or political independence. Hmm. All right. Second key principle in international law is necessity. The principle of necessity, it's a fundamental tenet of international humanitarian law and also customary international law. And it dictates that the use of force, including cyber force, is justified only when it is necessary to achieve a legitimate military objective. So in cyber operations, this principle requires that a state's actions must be a last resort and used only when non-forceful means are insufficient. So that suggests that you want to go ahead and look at what's required. We have the concept called DIME, D-I-M-E, Diplomatic Information, Military, and Economic. And those are the mechanisms by which nations will go ahead and apply force or pressure to other nation states. And if you think about it, if you're the president of the United States, you've got a phone there with a lot of speed dial buttons on it. And the first one probably goes to the State Department somebody does something you don't like, call up state department, uh, go ahead and give them a demarche, go ahead, say basically diplomatically, we disagree with you and we're calling you out on it. If that works fine, it's been handled at the diplomatic level. If that doesn't work, then your next button probably goes to the department of commerce. Let's do some embargoes. Let's go ahead and put some trade constraints and things such as that and restrictions. That's additional pressure. And then ultimately, your third button is the Pentagon, right? All right, time to go ahead and send in the carriers or whatever it is that you're going to use to project this force. But what I didn't mention in there is the concept of the eye and the dime, the information. And we don't really yet have an information button, so to speak. It really overlays the other ones when you tend to think about it. We're going to not necessarily say, boom, do the cyber stuff, because the cyber stuff is going to be an adjunct to what we're doing, not something else in and of itself. So we're still in an evolving area here in terms of international interactions. So the third principle in international law I want to talk about is proportionality. The principle of proportionality, it's rooted in international humanitarian law, and it's recognized as part of a customary international law. And that means that the harm caused by a military action, including cyber attacks, must not exceed the anticipated military advantage gain. In other words, the level of force in a cyber operation should be proportional to the intended military objective and avoid excess collateral damage. Now, the concept of proportionality also extends into kinetic. If somebody fires a rifle across a border, you don't launch a nuclear strike. back. you basically say, okay, somebody attacked at this level, we'll attack at that level. And the idea of proportionality is to keep things from blowing out of control, number one, but also to sort of set some limits in terms of what represents an appropriate behavior. In an ideal world, nations would not go to war, but we don't live in an ideal world. And so as a result, the concept of these international laws are designed to act as a throttle for escalation to go ahead and cause political and military commanders to think a little bit twice before they go ahead and do something. And the fourth one I want to mention in international law principle is distinction. It's sort of a cornerstone. It's found a lot of treaties, and it means that parties in a conflict must be able to distinguish between combatants and civilians and to target only combatants and military objectives. Now in the context of cyber warfare it means that cyber attacks should aim slowly at, or solely at valid military targets and you avoid targeting non-combatants or civilian infrastructure. Now the gray area comes be- area where you say well what about something that is dual use so to speak. For example, if you have a military base and it's next to a city and the military base has a water tower and the city has a water tower can you in a military operation Target that water tower in the military base. And the answer would be, well, yes, it's a valid military target. But what if it serves the community and the non-combatants out there? Well, now you're probably in the area that it says, no, it's not a valid target. And so as we look at these principles of international law, it suggests also, in addition to that, that your combatants must be uniformed. That is to say, if somebody is wearing an opposing uniform and they get certain rights, for example, they surrender, you're not allowed to go ahead and shoot them. They, you take them into custody. You give them certain protections underneath the Geneva Convention if you sign on to the Geneva Convention, and essentially move forward from that perspective. As compared to someone who is acting as a spy or wearing the wrong uniform or things like that, or ununiformed, and then as a result, those entities are not subject to the protection of international law. And as a result, uh, well, kind of the gloves come off now. How is this all translated from this concept of international law and international principles and UN charters and treaties and things like that into cyber? There's a document called the Talon Manual, and it's named after the capital of Estonia. And it's a Talon Manual on the international law applicable to cyber operations. Now, the first version was published over 10 years ago in April of 2013. Version two came out in 2017, and version three is under draft right now you can actually provide input should you desire to do so i'll put the link in the notes here so that if you say hey i think that this should be changed or updated you can do so what is that it's mapping the legal framework of war to cyber domain because we don't have any international treaties on cyber there's nothing in the geneva convention that talks about cyber there's nothing about a lot of this stuff so From their website, they state, the nature of the Talon manual will remain unchanged. Talking about going to 3.0. It will continue to be a non-legally binding scholarly work by distinguished international law academics and practitioners intended to provide an objective restatement of international law as applied in the cyber context. It is policy and politics neutral and will not represent the legal position or doctrine of any state or international organization. Hmm. Well, I remember reading the first version of this 10 years ago and there was 95 different rules in there. I'm thinking like, great, we'll we'll nail these 95 rules onto the door of the UN and see who pays attention. Well, the thing is, is that it's non-binding, of course, but it was a tremendous amount of effort and it's very comprehensive. Uh, You can purchase this right now. In fact, I found version 2.0 for sale on Walmart if you look at the Talon manual, but it's interesting reading and it's well worth understanding it. So... Let's take a look at some cyber operations that have taken place in the last few years. And we're going to look at the Talon manual and how it maps to them. Now, there's a lot of things we can look at. I'm only going to pick four for illustration purposes. One would be Stuxnet. It's around 2010. The Sony Pictures, they took place 2014, not Petya in 2017. And then Solar Winds uh, 2020. Now, if we take a look at the likely protagonists, antagonists, depending on how you want to look at it, for these things, they tend to be a little bit different, although the last two were probably the same entity. But let's take a look at Stuxnet. Now, for those of us who remember Stuxnet, what it was is it was very targeted malware that worked against the Natanz nuclear center in the Republic of Iran and essentially caused the centrifuges that were refining uranium hexafluoride to malfunction and break. Now, Rule two of the Talon Manual has a prohibition on the use of force. Well, Stuxnet could be seen as a use of force, which would violate the rule because you've actually caused something to be broken or damaged. Uh, Rule four on sovereignty in the Talon Manual talks about, well, this cyber attack raises those issues because it targeted the critical infrastructure of a sovereign state, basically another sovereign state than the one who launched it. And then you look at rule 15, necessity and proportionality. Now, was the use of Stuxnet Was it necessary and proportional for some states in responses to the nuclear program that was being pursued by the Republic of Iran? And now you go, hmm, maybe so, maybe not. Again, I'm not going to get into the politics of this, but I'm trying to point out the fact that we've got this whole big web of rules and laws and international structure that can apply to cyber. So I want you to start thinking about these things so the next time you see something in the press, you can go, hmm, that sounds right or it doesn't sound right. In 2014, there's a the Sony Pictures hack. Remember what happened there is that Sony came out with a movie. It was not considered to be favorable to the great leader of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. And as a result, Sony ended up being attacked. but downtime and then the United States, government actually, under the Obama administration took some remediation activities. Now, rule one is a prohibition on the intervention on the internal internal affairs of states. And you could say that, hey, this was a private company, and it was a movie, it was entertainment in the U.S., and it was seen as potentially an intervention in those internal affairs of the U.S. Some might disagree, but that was one way to apply it. Uh, Rule 13 on due diligence says you should be able to do your due diligence to prevent cyber attacks, which is kind of pointing at the victim here, saying you might have been able to do a better job on this one. And then Rule 17 on countermeasures uh, was the response the U.S. government had considered a countermeasure to the cyber attack. When I first heard about that, I'm saying, well, why are the shareholders of Sony getting a special tax benefit? Because the United States is deploying some of their resources against it. But as you learn more when you find out who the actors are, you might find out that there might have been more to it than meets the eye. Again, I don't have any classified information that would say one way or the other, but we can see that there's different rules that are applying here from the talent manual. Not Petya, which came out in 2017. If we remember that, it looked like ransomware. It really wasn't. It was basically designed to destroy hard drives and lock them all up and encrypt them. And although it sort of looked like ransomware, it sent you off to some particular Bitcoin address. Everybody got the same Bitcoin address, which means you couldn't tell who paid. And NotPetya was really targeted against Ukraine and their ability to collect tax information. It then spread to other entities that were corporations that had downloaded the same software, causing some significant problems. So rule four on sovereignty again, disrupting the sovereignty of a nation, Ukraine. And it did have global consequences, looking at what happened with Maersk and things like that, almost 300 million with the damage, a lot of stuff. Rule 31 was responsibility of states. The question of state responsibility is rather complex when you're trying to attribute it to a state actor. Now, some insurance companies have gone ahead and denied claims based upon their provisions. They have a little carve out for active war. And they stated that the then president of the United States of America had attributed this to a nation state, basically the Russian Federation, and therefore it is an act of war and therefore we don't have to pay. Well, I'm not going to get into the details of insurance companies where they pay or don't pay. Just recognize that insurance companies are not in the business of writing checks. They're in the business of cashing them. And so as a result, if there's an individual isolated incident that fits within the box they say, okay, fine. Well, this is something we cover, but if it's broad where it's going to take out everything, then you can't really cover all of that. It's probably why we didn't have in many policies three years ago, four years ago, pandemic exclusions, but now there probably is an exclusion for pandemics because, well, it's fresh in our mind. And last one, Rule, rule 60 you want to look at, use of force. Given the wide scale damage, it could be argued that not PETCHA did constitute the use of force, which means that you have that proportionality. Can you respond back in kind? And the fourth example uses solar winds, that came out in 2020 now in Rule 8, the principle of non-intervention uh, under the Talon Manual says the intrusion into SolarWinds software could be seen as an intervention in the internal affairs of states that use the software. Remember, SolarWinds was be able to go ahead and keep things uh, moved around update, And if you attack that, then everybody who is using SolarWinds was then potentially vulnerable to it. It was actually a rather brilliant type of a supply chain attack. Rule 7, under the rules of War is interpreted by the Tallinn Manual, and distinction raises questions about whether the attackers were able to distinguish between military and civilian targets, because we find a lot of civilian organizations were adversely affected. And then Rule Thirty-Two on attribution, attributing the attack to a specific state actor, is challenging, which makes it really tough for this attribution rule. You're supposed to say, "Hey, this was me." That's the idea of wearing a uniform in the military; you can tell where the uh, actors are. Now without getting into the politics of things, let's take a look at an event that started back in February of 2022. And that was the special military operation as defined by the Russian Federation that is taking place in Ukraine. And we see that Ukraine has actually been sort of a testbed for Russian cyber weapons and things such as that. There's also been territorial annexations, et cetera, that took place within the last 10 years. And now when this thing kind of goes high order, so to speak, we're looking at it to say, hmm, what can we learn about it from a cyber perspective? And the Wall Street Journal had mentioned that the U.S. saw signs of a decline in Russian ransomware strikes at the start of the war. And they haven't figured out the cause of that. And they thought that, hmm, why would that be? Why would it be a situation where... Ransomware operators tended to back off a little bit prior to the commencement of kinetic warfare. Now, we could do some speculation here and say that, well, maybe they were being recruited into there and they were being repurposed for what they're supposed to do or something else. But if we take a look at some of the cyber battlefield preparation prior to the 24 February attacks, and October of 2021, there's an Isaac Wiper malware it was composed and it was deployed in February 2022. Well, how do we know? You look at drivers, look at signatures, look at components, and you figure out, okay, fine, this has actually been going on for at least four months. The Ukrainian government websites were developed, they're cloned, they had some embedded malware and that work took place back around November 21, again, three months in advance. The Hermetic Wiper malware was developed State Migration Services of Ukraine was fished for information back in December. And the Whispergate malware is deployed in January. Ukrainian government websites are taken down in January. And their banking sector was DDoS for twice in two weeks during the month of February. So in February of 2022, pretty much everything was open fire. The Defense Ministry, the Army, Private Bank, Oshad Bank, all of us were DDoS, basically trying to say, we are going to go ahead from a cyber perspective, and make it so you cannot conduct business as usual. Grain producers were targeted with a file encryptor. Uh, the idea of the hermetic wiper, if you look up that malware, destroyed over 300 financial, government, energy, IT, and agricultural systems. The For communications, Kyiv Post was forced offline with DDoS. Government networks went down because of the Isaac wiper. And the Viasat K-A-Sat communications modems were disabled beyond repair. Kind of an interesting attack that ended up making the hardware not work. Now we saw what happened a little bit later with regard to Elon Musk and the uh, satellite network that he's running, but again, we're not getting into the politics or stuff. I want to stay focused here on the cyber. And then we even find out that border control stations were targeted with destructive malware. And then afterwards, we see an ongoing attack. Charities targeted, NGOs that were targeted with malware to prevent entities from being able to load up the Red Cross website was taken offline for hours. They find out that transportation logistics providers were attacked. Ukrainian telecom was targeted. Their connectivity dropped about eighty seven percent at one point. There's fake news out there saying, Hey, the president has surrendered and things like that. Well, we all know, you know, more than a year later, that some of this is disinformation and the targeting wasn't necessarily the hardware, but the wetware. If we say that gray matter up there are trying to influence people's perceptions of things, and that's kind of a valid approach, also in cyber that you don't see mentioned a whole lot in these doctrines is attacking kind of people's perceptions. But here's the interesting thought: did the you know, the Economist had an article where they said that Microsoft said that Kremlin-based hackers have launched hundreds of cyberattacks on Ukraine, seemingly timed to support Russia's kinetic military operations, such as bombing communications infrastructure. They've also been spreading propaganda, for instance, telling civilians in Mariupol that Ukrainian troops have abandoned them, and other analysts have expressed surprise at Russia's previously lackluster attempts at cyber warfare. Now, that's their quote, not mine. Because if you take a look at the totality of what occurred you find out that there was an awful lot of actions that took place now the question then comes out about it was it due to a lack of effort or was it due to a better defense or a combination of the two well let's take a look at some of the core differences you can do between kinetic and cyber warfare in particularly repurposing stuff so what we find out is that the russian federation is repurposed some of their tanks, the T-55s. Those were initially came on, their IOC was 1958. All right, that's 65 years ago when T-55 started coming off the assembly line. It's still being used today by Russia and Ukraine. Now, they're not considered to be the highest capable tank out there, but even a 1958 tank can do a lot of damage to a you know, civilian target or a military target that you can shoot back and take it out. So we find out then is that literally you can reuse munitions, old stock of weaponry, even weapons platforms like that, decades and even more than half a century later. Now, let's take a look at the same thing in 1958. What was considered state-of-the-art computing? An IBM 709. IBM 709 had tubes wasn't running on transistors, had 32K of memory, probably all core memory, all hand wound and things like that. And you can't have a cyber equivalent to the half century old munitions. In fact, you can't even take a Windows XP or Windows 95. I should be careful because a lot of people are still using XP. But Like a Windows 95 attack and dust it off and said, boom, here we go. Let's launch it again. Because what happens is, is the infrastructure that depends upon that has moved on. And so therefore, cyber is a little bit different than kinetic in so far that you have a half life of a cyber weapon. Now, years ago, I wrote something and I've mentioned this a couple times on the show. Half of what you know about cybersecurity will be obsolete in 18 months. And that's GMARC's corollary to Moore's law. And it's pretty much held true. If you don't believe me, 18 months ago, were you thinking about ChatGPT? Probably not. And 18 months from now, Windows 10 is going to be officially obsolete, deprecated, we're still on a Windows 10 machine, right? Now, it turns out the InfoSec Institute said the mean time to patch a vulnerability is between 60 and 180 days. Obviously, we as CISOs do a whole lot better than that, but maybe not. But how long does it take to exploit a new vulnerability? The Hafnian group took less than five minutes to go ahead and exploit once that vulnerability was discovered. So here's a question for you. Who has the advantage in cyber, the offense or the defense? See in kinetic, it's usually the defense that has the advantage. You can go ahead and build fortifications. You can hunker down. You've got time to prepare. You set little traps and opponents and barriers for your enemy. And then the opposing force and the offense, you ideally want about a three to one advantage. More is even better, but you find out that on the kinetic battlefront, front, defense has the advantage. In cyber it seems that offense has the advantage. They can respond faster, they can pivot quicker, and defenders tend to be running significantly time late. Now, the problem with cyber is that you could pull third parties into it a lot easier than you can in kinetic. You might say, hey, there's a kinetic war going on in some other part of the world. And yes, some people, either soldiers of fortune or people who have a strong sense of commitment to a particular cause, will get in a plane or whatever. They'll fly over there and say, give me a gun and let me go into the war. But more likely, you're going to see an easier, less you know, lower barrier to entry to entities such as Anonymous, for example, where they had said they're going to continue a cyber war against Russia. Uh, but did it make any difference? When you go ahead and you activate some of these opponents, does it, um, does it cause a significant push in it or has it just become kind of at the edge? Admiral Mike Rogers, who is now retired, but he's a former uh, director of the National Security Agency, had said, the Russian government is trying to generate more capacity. And these groups are attractive because they give them a measure of plausible deniability. These groups being, if you will, the hackier cracker groups and things like that, potentially criminal elements that said, hey, you know, we are in Russia, we are Russian, we care about this, and we will do it. And so the nice thing is, is that when we go to the attribution, you get that plausible deniability. Well, this is We are doing nothing to interfere with the freedom of expression of our citizens who wish to go ahead and do certain activities. Again, I'm not in propaganda, but that sort of sounds that way. But let's do a little bit of analysis here. If you're going to do a military operation and it's going to be a surprise attack, it requires a significant amount of planning and an awful lot of security and communications. You have to limit the number of people who are aware of it And as a result, you have all these compartments and things like that. You try to go ahead potentially and do deception against the enemy and go all the way back to, let's say, World War II and the effort to try to convince the Germans that the landing would be at Calais and not going to be at Normandy. But in doing your preparations for a military attack, who's brought in on the planning cycle? The more entities you bring in on the planning cycle, the more chance there is that there's a compromise, either due to carelessness or sloppiness or somebody just being a mole or a turncoat or whatever. Now, if you look at the Russian military intelligence organization, the GRU, the initial attacks are reasonably successful, even though they may not have had a lot of time to prepare. This doesn't look like, for example, that Ukraine was planned for years and years and years. If we take a look at the activities that are taking place in Gaza and in Israel, surprise attack, a lot of lack of knowledge on the a receiving end of the initial attack. Hey, where did this come from? We didn't see that. And that suggests that there had been an awful lot of careful preparation, but also very, very limited scope in terms of who had information, who had access and what systems were used too. because you have to assume that a sophisticated com- opponent is going to have access to certain communication systems, information systems, et cetera. Now, if you have an ongoing cyber capability, a national level asset. You have years of potential access operations. You can get into something and say, hey, we can see their stuff, or we can see their stuff, and you stay there. You could pre-stage backdoors, so if you eventually need to go ahead and light off a cyber attack, you can do so. You can start to build malware tools that are particularly targeted to your target, and what we find out is that in cyber battle preparation, there's an awful lot that you can do in terms of being able to assess what you could attack first. Early warning networks, command control and communications, civilian communications, et cetera. Now, here's the question. When you do a kinetic attack, do you throw all of your weapons in at once? You go into total war, so to speak. And if the answer is no, you hold back things in reserve, which is typically what happens, then how about cyber? Do you launch all your cyber weapons at once to try to give you the maximum advantage in kinetic? Or do you hold back a few knowing that the impact of that is going to be potentially worse damage to your side in regard to the kinetic activities? I don't know. These are strategic questions. Do you understand what your opponent's resistance is? And for example, if we take a look at the actions that took place in Ukraine although there are cyber activities that took place, every corporation that is affected by that, that has a point of presence there is going to activate their security response. And now you're not just dealing with the defenders of a nation state, you're dealing with defenders from across multiple corporations and multiple resources, all trying to protect their assets and their resources. But once you go ahead and you develop a patch and you fix, it can fix it across the board, not just for yourself, but for everybody else. And this is typically what we find is that zero days are they age like milk, not like wine. They don't last for a long time because as soon as somebody discovers a fix and you patch it, it doesn't work anymore. Or somebody else discovers a zero day first, they can use it. Then somebody else develops a patch, et cetera. So having a, a pile of zero days, is like having a, a collection of vintage milk mm, does not work too well. Also, there's sort of an innovation that can be created by desperation and we find out that there's been a tremendous amount of innovation that was done on the defensive side looking in the ukraine situation we might see that also take place in other operations around the world but here's the question if you're going up against your biggest baddest enemy you're probably wanting to use your best weapons but if you are doing an action that is not your primary enemy. That is to say, you think there's somebody else out there. Would you hold up your best cyber weapons for that and not reveal your capabilities too soon? Because then your bigger opponent could potentially patch against that. Because as I said before, a lot of this is hacking the wetware. It's about propaganda, misinformation, disinformation, malinformation. They're all different things, but cyber may not be about crafting digital bites. It might be about cracking, crafting sound bites. Now, what happens is that, does everybody follow the rules here? We know it's unlawful to attack civilians, yet we see that taking place. It's unlawful to attack a civilian hospital, but yet we saw that taking place. It's unlawful to respond disproportionately, but we see that taking place. Uh, it's unlawful to hold unfair trial or cruel, humiliating and degrading treatment, but that's taking place. So it kind of brings up the question is that when you're in war, do the rules even matter anymore? And if both parties act in accordance with, quote unquote, the rules of war and not being, you know, you know, gender stereotypically here, but, you know, the gentleman's warfare, so to speak. If you go back and you look at Gettysburg and you know, the movie, for example, where um, Colonel Chamberlain is up against a Alabama soldier, the soldier's got the draw on him, points his weapon at him goes, click, misfires. And so Chamberlain takes his sword and holds it under the guy's chin, and what does the Alabama officer say? "You're prisoner, sir." Basically, says, "Okay, I'm your prisoner." Chamberlain says, "Wait here, don't run away, don't run away, don't try to reload." He's like, "Okay, I surrendered. I'm I'm a prisoner." That doesn't seem to happen today in the 21st century. It's a different world now. The thought, though, and we look at cyber, though, is that I think we're starting to see that cyber doesn't exist for the sake of cyber. It's going to play a supporting role rather than a decisive role in major theater wars. This is an observation from the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Now, war will still be a continuation of politics by other means. That's Clausewitz and Fukuyama, And rely on the more tangible effects of violence and on the elusive effects of compromising information networks. Basically, Uh, People get excited when they see something blow up. They don't get so excited when the network engineers are working all night long trying to get things up and running again, unless you're that network engineer. And last quote here from CSIS, the merits of cyber operations continue to be their utility as a tool of political warfare because they facilitate an engagement short of war. Interesting. And so therefore the thought is that if you're going to go ahead and do cyber it's not an actual blowing something up, where someone says, yeah, that's definite, but is it operating at the lower level, irritant disruption ability that doesn't quite breach, hey, we're in an all-out war. And that brings up the question, would you as parents and your sons and daughters to fight a kinetic war against an opponent who launched just a cyber attack against your nation state? And that's a tough question to answer. Now, can you even win a cyber war? If we take a look at the idea of operations in cyberspace, those are digital actions that alter perceptions, behavior, or representations in the physical space, because cyber for the sake of cyber is meaningless. If you could change the targeting coordinations in an enemy's weapon system, but they never ever got around to firing the weapon, did you really do anything? Or if you create fake targets on the battle space, but the opponent who's now got all this fake information in their head and they change your perception, but if you will, somebody puts a warhead on a forehead and that person's now no longer in a decision-making capability. Did you really do anything? So what is the objective of cyber warfare? If you think of strategic military cyber options, you want to develop cyber weapons as quickly as you can. Why? Because zero days work and patch vulnerabilities tend not to. You could keep your resources for later effect and then have long lead times as compared to deploying them as fastly as you get them. That's another option. Another strategic military cyber option would be to co-opt criminal and hacker groups. Let's go ahead and say, Hey, we've got political alignment or maybe just the highest bidder. And in fact, you can outbid for zero days on the black market. And I've seen that we're very, there's a article a couple weeks ago. And I went and took a look at the site up to $10 million for a working zero day on a fully patched iPhone. Looking at what organizations are looking to purchase, kind of gives you an insight in terms of what capabilities they're looking for to be able to do that. And of course, you want to be able to do covert action. You could cause harm without attribution through these false flag operations, make it look like somebody else did it. Now, if you're doing kinetic operations to take out a command and control system or communications network or something like that, does that suggest that your cyber didn't work? Because the cyber has a much lower cost per payload, essentially zero, right? Once you built it, you can copy, copy, copy. It's infinitely reusable until the target adapts like the board. And you potentially have plausible deniability, the false flag. As compared to kinetic missiles and drones, they don't have these advantages. So why are we still seeing kinetic attacks and things like that when a cyber might accomplish the same sort of ability to disrupt or disable an opponent? And that suggests that there's something else going on. You're trying to affect the mind of the populace. If you think about it, the concept of terror, terror is traffic and adrenaline. And this is kind of a radical conclusion here to say that the purpose of some military tactics is not to achieve battlefield victory, but to create terror in a target population because it can demoralize or solidify a population. I mean, what cultural assessments do you have to do in advance to predict whether it's going to demoralize everybody or they're going to harden up against it? And what if you're incorrect and how do you change the plan? Because Clausewitz, i mentioned him previously, he had written Von Kriege, Actually, it was published posthumously by his spouse because he had died back in the 1820s. But what he talked about is the trinity. And you look at the government and then the military and the will of the people. And if you're fighting an opponent, you could take out any one of these things. We find out that, for example, North Vietnam was not able to take out the U.S. government. They were not able to defeat the United States military on the battlefield, but they were able to go ahead and defeat the will of the people. And so by applying Western philosophy against a Western opponent, then North Vietnam was very effective at doing that. So what lessons can we learn here? We find out that if you're in a situation where you're looking at cyber warfare, both either as an actor or as a spectator, cyber is going to precede and accompany kinetic action from now on. You're not going to do Kinetic action without as as much cyber as potentially have. And the advantage now goes to the offense, not the defense, which is a totally changed in terms of our military terminology. Your ability to be adaptable is going to be key to survival. Quick patching, quick adjustment, being able to go ahead and possibly even grab a cyber weapon, reverse engineer it, recompile it, retarget it, and send it back on the other way. And your cyber warriors are going to have to be a permanent part of any military. And we're seeing nation states creating cyber careers for the military folks. Your critical infrastructure is going to be targeted first. Take out the power, take out the water, take out the communications, et cetera. And that's going to be continuously targeted. And we're seeing that that's taking place because although it might not be a pure dual use because the Talon manual is not the force of law, we're kind of stuck with that's going to be a tactic because, well, it works. And you can co-opt non-military entities, hackers, criminals, zero days, cyber patriots, et cetera, for cyber warfare, which means you have a force multiplier going into cyber war that you would not normally get on a battlefield where you're going to get practiced, experienced cyber troops, if you will, as compared to calling up the reserves or trying to do raw recruitment and try to rapidly train somebody for it. You've already got people who know what they're doing. And the vulnerabilities that we have to cyber attacks will continue to increase. So, a lot in 45 minutes, but I hope you found it valuable. It is an area that I think are going to be concerned about more and more going forward. And therefore, if you find that this is an interesting topic or you have anything to say, let me know. You can go to LinkedIn, find us on CISO Tradecraft, and give us some feedback. Also, you could uh, email us at CISOTradecraft.com. If you're following us on YouTube, great. If not, go ahead and subscribe. And we're on all the major podcast channels that are out there so we hope we found that this is valuable and interesting if you do you know give us a thumbs up and communicate with us and if not let's give us some ideas of better topics to have i'm your host g mark hardy it's been a privilege to share the last few minutes with you i'm talking about cyber war. until next week stay safe out there